He's read for us Joshua 24, verse 31, and that certainly is the crux of what I want us to talk about. Uh, I want to look at Joshua this morning, uh, the man, which obviously is going to involve a lot of the book of Joshua, but it's going to expand kind of a broader scope than just maybe what's recorded for us in Joshua. In fact, while most of our passages that we're going to be looking at do come from the book of Joshua, we're actually going to start in the book of Exodus when we first see Joshua mentioned. And the reason I want to talk about Joshua is not any conceited points. It's not anything about me, right? Um, I always feel awkward when I talk about Joshua because I feel like some people are going to think about that. Especially when I lead number 480, Dare to Stand Like Joshua, I always feel weird <laughs> leading that song because as the song leader... You're usually standing, and it gets even weirder for that reason. Um, I wish I could say I was uh, exempt from using that as a joke sometimes, too, so maybe that's why I think of it. But, but Joshua is who we're going to talk about this morning, and there's a good reason for that. It's because of his role in God's plan for Israel. God told Abraham way back when, right, of the promises that he had in store for him because he was a man of faith. He had left his homeland, traveled as a vagrant, as a vagabond with no homeland. The implication seems to be that he left his family, uh, he left his friends, he left everything, kind of chased this, this wild dream of God's promises. And I say wild dream because that's probably how it looked, right? People said, you're probably crazy. People probably said that he was dumb for leaving his homeland, his friends, and his family. But he chased God. We know that led him through, we might say, the wilderness and through the desert and all these places to a place eventually where God, as he was traveling through it, said, this is the land that you're going to have. This is the land your people are going to dwell. And he gives them several promises. Oftentimes we kind of lump it into like three main promises, right? We talk about how he was promised a land, how he was promised a nation, he was promised a seed, and what we mean by that, especially uh, circumspectly as we look backwards, we see that Jesus came through his line and gave him that fulfilled promise of seed there. But Joshua had an important role for Israel as well. Just as Abraham might be the father of Israel, we say it that way because he literally was the father of that nation through whom the promises are fulfilled, Joshua had an important role. Moses is viewed as kind of the leader of Israel when God begins to fulfill kind of that true sense of the physical nation that, Abraham, that came from Abraham's uh, generations. We think of Moses being the leader out of Egypt, and he certainly was, and we don't want to diminish his role. God has a lot of, uh, of import on Moses. Even his image as it stands through time represents a lot. Um, but Joshua, as far as fulfilling God's plan for Israel, becoming a nation in a land, I don't think you could argue anyone was more important than Joshua in fulfilling that. And so and that's kind of what I want to talk about today, because the place that Joshua is, is put by God is a place of leadership. Just like Moses before him was a leader out of Egypt, Joshua was a leader into another land, Right? So we might think of Moses taking them out and Joshua takes them in, right? 
And that's what I want to talk about today because I want to talk about Joshua because he was a great leader. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of noticed in myself a lack of lead, good leadership. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that in yourself. Hopefully not. But I just kind of noticed that I'm not always the best leader. I'm a good follower a lot of the times, but I'm not always the greatest leader, right? Just not my personality all the time. I like to kind of sit back and let things happen to me rather than be the instigator of action. And I struggle with that. I try to challenge myself in that more. But even like in the world, right, just in life, I feel like our culture kind of lacks good leadership. And I, I think every culture probably in the godly sense, lacks good leadership. But some cultures lack leadership in general more than others. And I feel like as I've grown up, the culture that I've grown up in and around has just kind of lacked solid leadership. You know, you can look at the political climate and say what you will for our leaders, but some people are going to say we lack good, strong leadership. In our homes, we're lacking leadership, right? And I'm not speaking against anyone here, but just kind of in a general sense, Homes are lacking leadership more and more, it seems. Um, I don't know about your workplace. I feel like we've, I've encountered in every workplace that I've been in, there's always kind of one chief, right? But there's still kind of a lack of leadership a lot of times. Don't you feel that? Like even the chief isn't a good chief all the time. Or even amongst the workers, there's no real lead or no presence of leadership in the smaller groups that maybe you work intimately with. I think leadership is just something we all kind of struggle with, knowing how to implement, knowing when to implement it, why I should even be a leader. These are kinds of things that I think I struggle with in, within myself, but I also see kind of just people struggle with that on some level. Some of us may be inclined to be a leader, but maybe we don't always do it the best, or we don't always know why we're being a leader or what we should lead people to, even though we have that drive to be a leader. Um, and so I think Joshua serves as a good template for being a leader. What I don't want to do this morning is to say that you can't have your personality in leading. Joshua certainly had a personality. Um, he certainly was his own man, but he was modeled by who he needed to be in God, right? His personality was tempered and molded to fit the template that God was seeking, but it certainly didn't negate who he might have been versus who Moses was. Him and Moses were not the same people. We see that through how they handled situations even a little bit differently. And so I don't want to discourage people from, from being your own person in that, but I do want you to kind of evaluate who you are and how that fits into what God expects you to be. Those things aren't always mutually exclusive, but sometimes they can be, and you need to figure out how to work that out. Um, so with Joshua, hopefully, at least on some level, we see a need for leaders. And, and as I'm talking about this morning, maybe even in this group, just, you know, the group here, there's what, 11? How many of us are there today? 10? Um, there for a few minutes, we were at 8 this morning, which is the original number that we started with. So it was kind of like, I was thinking, wow, this looks really small. And then I was thinking, man, this is where we started. And... Um, you know, with eight or ten people, and on a good Sunday, I think we have typically like 15. I think if everybody's here, we're kind of floating around that number. Not a lot of people, right? I mean, I think we enjoy certain aspects of being a small group and things, but 
I think when you think about a small group of people, you typically assume there's not a lot of leadership, right? I'm not saying that's true of this group, but leadership is a thing that's hard to come by and you don't have a lot of good leaders. So you assume when there's a small group, there's not a lot of leadership. And so I would encourage us as a small group with this lesson, we need to be leaders. Um, that doesn't mean we're butting heads and we're all trying to be chieftains, right? But we need to be good leaders. And I think that's the idea of setting an example. Um, so anyway, I think Joshua helps us in this. So Joshua 24, the verse that uh, James read for us, I think sets the tone for why leaders, a good leader, not just a leader, but a good leader, and I'm going to argue that Joshua really is a great leader, um, is important. Look at this verse again that James read for us. If you've forgotten, it's very short. It wasn't a lot to sit there and contemplate. Joshua 24, verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work the Lord did for Israel. Really fascinating, and I don't think it's just because Joshua's a good leader that this happens, but Joshua certainly strengthened and facilitated this. Was Moses a great leader? I think he was. But this couldn't have been said when Moses was around. I mean, the generation that he brought out of, of Egypt, this couldn't have been said. Now, so cer- certainly there's something to be said for the people here. The people were willing to be led the right way. But Joshua didn't fail them in that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. When there's people who want to follow God, Joshua was a good leader for them. All right, so let's, let's actually turn back to Exodus. Um, we're going to start here, and we're going to be flipping kind of back and forth just because it's hard to sit in one spot and talk about all of Joshua's life and how he leads. Uh, but Exodus 24, I think we get the first glimpse of this, and this is kind of how I want to talk about it. I want to talk about the qualities of Joshua that made him a great leader as I see them. I think we could probably, each one of us, as we think about Joshua, maybe come up even with our own things that we believe attributed to him being a great leader. But I think these are the few that stand out to me. And hopefully these will be true and encouraging to you as you evaluate your leadership. The first one I want to say is that Joshua is a man of humility. And uh, he was a man of humility before he was ever a leader. He, he, He developed that in himself before he was ever appointed to be a leader of the people. Look in Exodus 24, look at verse 13. We'll just read this verse here for a second to get kind of a portrait of this because we don't know much about Joshua before he leads, honestly. Um, But look at verse 13 here of Exodus 24. It reads, Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. Just one little verse here, noticing Joshua being Moses' assistant. Moses is the big man on campus, right? He's like the guy leading them out. He's led them out. In fact, this is when in verse or chapter 24, the covenant has been renewed. The blood has been sprinkled on the people. They say, these are the words of the law, and we're going to do all of them. And then God invites a very select group of people up on top of the mountain to join him in this like covenant meal, right? And Joshua gets to be a part of that meal. Um, but did you notice Joshua's role kind of in all this? He's, he's only mentioned for a moment. And it's, he's mentioned as being the assistant. And I, I deduce from this 
Joshua must have been a humble guy because who wants to be the assistant, right? Like, I don't know. I've been an assistant a time or two in my life, and it doesn't take very long before I start trying to, like, climb up the ladder, right? Like, I'm like, all right, I got to show myself so I can get out of this spot and be somebody, right? But uh, Moses leads for a good 40 years after this. And we don't see Joshua ever clashing with Moses. Really, we see Joshua is still kind of his assistant for 40 more years. <laughs> Joshua's not a young man when he takes over, so to speak, when he becomes the leader. And so I just wanted to point this out. Before he was ever the leader, he already was exercising his humility and service to Moses. Uh, okay. Exodus 33 emphasizes the same thing, so we'll just read this and move on. Exodus 33, verse 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So again, we see his humility and service to Moses here. All right, so even before he's a leader, we see just a couple glimpses of Joshua, and I think they're glimpses of uh, of humility, and as we're going to talk in a moment of of faith. Um, but look, even after he becomes a leader, in Joshua chapter 3, Joshua chapter 3, so we see glimpses of Joshua's humility before he becomes a leader. Um, but look at his, or let me say this, look at how it describes the process of Joshua being appointed to leadership. Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, and finally, Israel's about to cross into the land. So we're skipping ahead a lot. We're still kind of in, in uh, transit, if you will, in Exodus 24. They haven't even rejected the land and wandered for 40 years yet. That's how long ago it was. Well, here we are some 40 years later. They're about to finally cross into the land of Canaan, and they do that by crossing the Jordan River from the east. Um, But right before that happens, in verse 7 here, look at what it says. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. To me, this looks like people might be wondering, Moses is gone, who's the next guy that's going to take charge? My assumption in this is probably several people would like to be the people to take, take charge, right? But God has to take note and say, I want people to know you're my man. There's no, there shouldn't be any dispute among this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. You're my man. Which seems to tell me that maybe Joshua wasn't the natural assumption. Maybe he wasn't like the most leadery type. I don't know. I think that's a fair deduction here. But also look at how God appoints him. Verse 7, it says, I will begin to exalt you. What do we know about the types of people God exalts? The humble, right? And so I think, again, the implication is here, Joshua has proved himself serviceable by his humility to Moses and his service to him and to God. And so God says, I'm exalting you now to be the leader. You're just this humble assistant, and now you're going to be the leader. And so before God appointed him as a leader, he showed his humility. And because of that, I think, because of his humility, he is appointed to be a leader. 
Um, this is emphasized again in Joshua 5. You remember this kind of this odd story beginning in verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5 um, where this man just kind of appears before Joshua and he has a sword in his hand. And it describes this guy as being the commander of the army of the Lord. So we get this picture of almost like this angelic figure just kind of appearing before Joshua. Well, how does Joshua respond when this guy just kind of appears before him? Well, It says, uh, Joshua asked this question, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, why does my Lord say to his servant, what does my Lord say to his servant? And he says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did it. So I think even God appoints him because he was humble to be a leader. But then even when he's a leader, Joshua doesn't give up this sense of humility when someone greater than him is in front of him, right? Like some people, I think when they become leader, they refuse to accept anyone being greater than them or more important to them or more significant to them. But when Joshua is presented kind of, some might say this potential obstacle of like there's someone greater or more important in front of you, he's totally willing to humble himself and serve that person, right? And I don't try to make a lesson out of only serve people that are more important than you. But the idea is Joshua is more than willing when the time is appropriate to serve. And so I think that's what makes him a good leader in one way, is that he never gave that up. He was always humble like that. Okay, so Joshua's a man of humility, despite whatever circumstances, before he's a leader, after he's a leader. Also, he's a man of faith. Um, turn with me back to the book of Numbers. This is actually before, again, he was the leader of the people, moving them into the land of Canaan. Numbers chapter 13, we see kind of our first exposed, prolonged look into who Joshua is. And I think it's funny because it's really coming through more of like Caleb and the other guy, Joshua, right? Um, But he's identified in Numbers chapter 13 as being one of the ten spies that's sent into the land of Canaan when they first get to the edge of it. Now, ultimately, we know this story goes, as Moses leads the people, he sends these spies in. They reject their ability to take the land, and so they have to wander for 40 years. And it's not until 40 years later that Joshua comes back as the leader and actually takes the land. But look in verse 25 of Numbers 13. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. These are the ten spies. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. So the report's not favorable. And of course we see, as we continue through this, how uh, Joshua responds favorably. Look in verse uh, 6 of chapter 14. I'm skipping down a little bit. Because this part includes, it specifically includes Joshua with Caleb. Verse 6 of chapter 14, Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, 
The land which, with, which we passed through it to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. All right. So Joshua is a man of faith, right? Him and Caleb are the only two people that come back of this party of ten that say we can take the land. They all agree it's a good land. Only two believe God's promise that they can take the land. And Joshua is one of them. So even before Joshua is ever leading the people, he's already demonstrating not only the humility he has, but the great faith with which he's operating through, right? And I think this is one of the reasons he ends up being the God's chosen leader of Israel. Um, Look in Joshua chapter 6, if you will. Again, after Joshua's appointed leader, we have Joshua chapter 6. Joshua was willing to exercise his faith, to show his faith, even when it seemed like an unlikely thing. Joshua chapter 6 tells us the story of Jericho. I think most of us are probably familiar with at least the generalities of this chapter, right? There's a, there's a city, almost as soon as they cross the Jordan, that represents uh, an opportunity to begin conquering the land. And it's the city of Jericho. The only problem with Jericho as a, con- a potential conqueror is that it's a walled city, which is a big deal. Um, and so in Joshua chapter 6, Look in verse uh, verse 1 here. Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. So they, they basically hole up because they see this army coming. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. All right, Lord. This is me speaking. If I were Joshua, well, I am, but you know what I mean. If I were speaking, I'd say, great, how are we going to do it? And I would expect an answer like, well, maybe I witnessed in Egypt. I'm going to send plagues on this city, and they're all going to die, and they're going to come screaming and running out, so all you have to do is hack them down when they come out the doors, right? That's been my experience, more or less. But look at what God says. You shall march around the city, this is verse 3, all the men of war going around the city once. Okay, God, okay. So far, so good. We're going to march, then what? You shall do this for six days. All right, God, I guess I can do that, but then you're going to send the plagues or something, right? Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow trumpets. Okay, and then you're about to send the plagues, right? No. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Seriously? Like, that's how... Are you sure you want to do it that way? Like, this is where my faith would be like, okay, wait, what? Are we sure? This, This doesn't seem very probable, right? This doesn't even seem, in Joshua's experiences, like what God would do. Right? I mean, it's not like anything he's done before. Verse 6, So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said, Take up the ark of the Lord. 
And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it goes on to say, verse 8, Joshua continues to command and do, and each day he does it just like God said to do it. So I say all this to say, despite the unlikely scenario that God presents for his faith, right? how unlikely is it that the wall should fall down when you do this? Well, outside of itself, outside of supernatural things, zero, right? But that doesn't influence Joshua's faith. And so when it seems unlikely, Joshua doesn't miss a step in his faith. He's like, all right, God said it, let's do it. Look at, I'll just read it for you. You can stay there in Joshua. Hebrews chapter 11 makes this super plain for us. Not that we can't see this anyway um, by implication from the story, but Hebrews 11 does us a favor and just spells it out for us. Look, I'll re- just listen as I read this. In verse 30 of Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith they fell. What's interesting, God says he'll do it, right? It was God's power that made them fall, but they couldn't fall without the faith of the people doing what God said. And certainly Joshua is the one that leads the charge in that, right? All right, let's do it. So Joshua, and this is just one moment. We can look at many, but Joshua is a man of faith even when it seems unlikely. Right? It didn't have to make sense in his brain for him to believe what God said. A man of prayer. If you would flip over one page, Joshua 7. Joshua was a good leader not only because of the humility that he had through his life, not only because of the faith that he had through his life, um, but because of his prayer as well. In Joshua 7... Israel suffers kind of their first big defeat um, because of the treachery of one of their own. Someone from within their own camp betrays the trust of everybody, right? God says, don't take anything from the people you're conquering. Devote it all to me. Somebody steals some stuff and keeps it for themselves. And the long story short, Achan and his family die because of that sin. But before they realize what's going on, they go to fight a battle. And God causes them to lose the battle and a lot of people die because of this, at least at the time, unknown sin in the camp. Right? In Joshua chapter 7, verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Okay. Joshua doesn't really know what's happened here. He's just like, we lost the battle. And in his loss and in his confusion, what does he do? He talks to God, right? Now say what you will for his prayer, because I think it's a prayer of a confused person. Because he thinks in all his mind, we've done everything the Lord's asked, and then we just lost this battle. But the bottom line is, even in his confusion, he goes to God in prayer. And that's what makes him a good leader. 
Because this is when God tells him the problem. This is when God reveals to him how he can fix it, right? But it's not just in the losses or in the troubles, the failures that Joshua is praying. If you turn to Joshua chapter 10, it's in the great victories that Joshua even prays. He doesn't forget in the jubilation of a victory to talk to God. Verse 6 uh, tells us about, begin, verse 6 through 14 re- really tells us the story of how Joshua wins this big battle against these five kings that come against them because they took a city. And God helps them in that because as long as, uh, as, long as uh, the battle's going on, the sun kind of like hangs out in the air past when it should have. That's what makes this story notable, I think, for a lot of us. But look at verse 12. At that time, after this major victory, where God hangs the sun in the sky longer so they can keep fighting, Joshua says, He speaks to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, sand still at Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, and the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Um... Is it not written in the book of Jasher, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And it says specifically back in verse 12 that Joshua spoke these words to the Lord. Um, you You can make an argument that this is a prayer. You can make an argument that this may be a song of victory. Either way, he's talking to God. Um, Either way, he wants to confirm what God just did for them. It'd be like us saying, maybe we have been praying and praying and praying for a family member. Maybe they have been like teetering on faithfulness or faithlessness. Something happens through your influence, through someone else's influence. You've just been praying, something happened, God, that they'll, they'll not give up, right? Something does happen, and they come back. And they're more faithful than they've ever been. And things start going well. And you see them repenting and changing. Well, then wouldn't it be appropriate then to go to God in prayer and say, God, this is what just happened. And thanks for that. That's basically what Joshua is doing. As a good leader, he looks beyond himself. Was it Joshua fighting the battle? Yes. Right? But he recognizes it's by God's hand that he had the victory. Um, and so I think that's what makes him a good, a good leader here. Okay, so another thing that I want us to look at is Joshua is a man of God's word. He's a man of humility. He's a man of faith. He's a man of prayer, and he's a man of God's words. He pays attention to the words of God. Sometimes I think we could be humble, and we can have faith, and we can pray, but we're not actually paying attention to what it is God's actually telling us, right? In faith. My faith says, I know God's going to give me a new house, right? Do we need a new house? Maybe. That's not always a bad prayer, right? But is God telling me he's going to give me a new house, right? Not necessarily. By faith, I know God's going to give me the strength to overcome temptation. Now, that's that's a prayer that I know is based on something God's told me, right? That's what Joshua does. His life is based on the words of God. It's not just some nebulous thing. Joshua 8. Joshua 8. 
verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Verse 32, And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which, which he had written. So not only is he heeding the words, right? That means he knows the words because he's building the altar the way it's supposed to be built and he's offering on the altar the things that are supposed to be offered by God's word. He's also writing the words, right? From this story, you get that he knows what God's been saying, right? There's no like nebulous faith. There's no nebulous prayer that's just kind of based on what I think should happen. He knows exactly what God's been telling him to do. Right? He knows the words of God. Again, in uh, verse 34 and 35, And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, and according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. I think a good leader not only pays attention to the words of God, but shares them. I think that probably separates a a good leader from a great leader. A good leader pays attention to the words of God. A great leader leads other people to know the words of God. And that's, I think, a key point in what makes Joshua a great leader. Well, those were in life successes. Those come in the context of a lot of victories. God renewing his covenant within the land. It's like an affirmation that you're doing the right thing, Joshua. You're going the right way. And so he builds these altars and he spreads the word of God. But at the end of his life, he's dying. And as any man might, you kind of reflect on your deathbed, right? If you have time to kind of sit there and you know the end is coming, I don't know a person who doesn't do some reflection in that moment, right? Well, look at what he says in Joshua 23, verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from neither to the right or to the left. All right, look at verse uh, 14, skipping down a little bit. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He knows he's going to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that no one word has failed all of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, go and go and serve the other gods and bow down to them. All right. And in, in, on his deathbed, as he's reflecting, he's reflecting on the word of God, which means he spent a lot of time involved with it in his life, if that's the thing that comes to mind in his last hours or days or whatever. Also, I think what's interesting is how can he know this stuff? How can he know that none of this stuff has failed? How can he know that God's going to do one thing or another depending on their action? Like, What gives him the knowledge to make any of these claims? 
Well, the answer is a pretty simple one and one we probably all know. God told him. Which, again, is showing us Joshua spent time reading and understanding the words of God. So that at the end of his life, as he's reflecting, he says, you know what? There hasn't been one thing that God has said that hasn't come to pass. Not one of them, because he knows each and every one of them. That made Joshua a great leader. The last thing that I want to look at is he, and I think you would conclude this up to this point. It's kind of a natural conclusion. What made Joshua a great leader is that he put God first. That's shown in his humility. That's shown in his faith. That's shown in his prayer life. That's shown in his uh, in God's word, how he spent time in it. When he won the battle of Ai in Joshua chapter 8, after having lost it the first time he tried because the, the, the defilement within the camp because of the family of Achan, um, you can imagine the emotion that kind of went into that victory because it was the first, I use this term loosely, but kind of hard-fought battle. Like They had suffered a setback the first time. They came back and actually won the second time. But in that, you'd be... I think I would be tempted to be like, I did it this time, right? We did it. Like, we overcame. We didn't mess up. We did everything right. Here we are celebrating our victory. Verse 30 says, Joshua builds an altar. We just read that a moment ago. It's the same passage that we read evaluating how Joshua paid attention to the words of God after they won the battle of Ai. He put God first in a moment that he could have been celebrated as the best leader, put on people's shoulders, whatever, whatever. He wants to build an altar. And the last verse that I want us to look at is not only does he put God ahead of the work or the celebration, but he puts God ahead of other people, which seems like an odd thing to consider, like putting something above the needs of people around me or the wants of people around me. But that's what a great leader does. A great leader says, you may want or need something, but if God needs something else, then I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to pursue God, right? A good follower or a great follower follows that leader regardless. But a great leader, that's the direction they're going is towards God, right? Look at the very end of Joshua's life. Joshua 24 is the last verse we'll look at. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. On his deathbed, he's reflecting, right? None of the words of God have failed to to come as he said they would come. None of the things he said would happen have failed to happen. And so, we remember the verse that James read for us. Everybody in Joshua's lifetime and the people that lived with Joshua, that lived past him, served God. But they had a choice to make. And Joshua had led them towards God. Because he was a great leader, right? But 
in this ad admonishment, in this encouragement, he says, hey, whatever direction you go, that's your choice. You have to choose the direction you're headed. But he didn't make uncertain the way that his family was going, right? That he had chosen the Lord. And that's what great leaders do. Good leaders, they can be humble. Good leaders can even show some aspects of faith. Good leaders can be prayerful people on some level, right? Good leaders can also know some of God's word. But great leaders always put God first despite the victories, the setbacks, people around them. They're always choosing to follow God, right? They don't cave to peer pressure, circumstance. Great leaders are always seeking God. And so I think these are some of the reasons that I see that made Joshua great. The encouragement and really the challenge for us is if you're going to be your, you know, you're probably not going to be like Joshua. <laughs> I don't think any one of us are in a position or will ever be in a position to lead a group of people to conquer like some territory. Uh, you know, who knows, but I don't think that's going to happen. But we can all kind of be the Joshua's of our life, right? Like, I can be the Joshua in my family. You can be the Joshua in your family. I can be the Joshua in my church. You can be the Joshua in your church. I can be the Joshua amongst my friends, as can you. You can be the Joshua at work, right? Like, we can all be a type of Joshua in our own lives and in our own contexts. So we have to ask ourselves, am I a great leader or am I just a good one? Like, am I just a good leader? Great leaders pray and put God first and exercise faith and know God's word and are humble. So if you don't find yourself kind of fitting into all of those things, you may be a good leader, but strive to be a great one. Strive to be a godly one like Joshua. If you can't even say that you're a good leader, that's fine. Just kind of like we talked about in class this morning. Everybody starts somewhere. The main thing is you recognize where you are and you're making a move to get better, to move forward, right? So if you're not even a good leader, look at these things and start implementing them in your life. God's the one that's going to change you. So certainly you're implementing them with the goal to put God first, right? I'm going to be humble, not because that's what makes a good leader, but because that's what God asks me to be. And consequently, you'll be a good leader. I'm going to pray because that's what God wants me to do, and that will also make me a good leader, right? I'm going to know God's word because that's what God wants me to know and that will make me a good leader, right? If you find yourself not a good leader, that's something you can change today. The song that we're going to sing is number, uh, what did I say? 480.